Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Provoki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Conway Bowman has been on my podcast wish list since this show first began. Nine seasons later, it's finally happened. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with Conway to learn more about his adventurous lifestyle, how he became known as the fly fishing guide for Mako sharks, why Makos may just be the ultimate game fish, and more. I was born in San Diego, California and raised here. And I currently still live here. So um, it, you know, it was the perfect, it was the perfect place to grow up because not only do we have the ocean right here, but we have the mountains that are an hour and 15 minutes to the east of us where we get snow. So it goes up from co- from the coast up to 5,000 feet in about an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes. Cool. So we had this great dynamic of, of the ocean the mountains and in between the coast and the mountains we had all sorts of reservoirs so you know my life was really centered around water whether it was the ocean the local lakes um or some of the 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 the, the, i I guess we call them coastal creeks up in the higher elevations where we had rainbow trout so you know and my, my dad was a was a big big outdoorsman he loved to fly fish he loved the conventional fish loved to ocean fish. Um, and he was also a big bird hunter. So our life was just always outdoors. So I was fortunate that every weekend he would take me someplace, whether it was on the ocean in his small boat, whether we were, 
you know, casting to really small coastal rainbow trout in our mountains or fishing many of our reservoirs. And then he'd take me on duck hunting adventures and bird hunting, you know, so it was just, it was an outdoor experience that, uh, that really has kind of shaped me into the, the, the guy I am today. Yeah. Do you have siblings? I do. I have three sisters. None of them like, like to fish. Okay, they're he, all, he tried, but they didn't, they didn't stick. Well, you know, you know, they, they were into theater and music. My mom was, was, was really into, um, having us kids, you know, explore the arts. So singing, music, dancing, I did all that too. See, that's the thing. I mean that, so my life was sort of this paradox. I had this really awesome outdoor experience in addition to playing sports. So I played football and baseball, but my mom saw the value in educating her kids in the arts. So I went through dance lessons, singing lessons. I took ballet. I took tap dancing. I learned how to play guitar. I learned how to play drums, all that stuff. So it was, we had this, I think in the neighborhood, they thought we were the, like the weirdo family because we had all, I mean, all kinds of stuff going on. I mean, you know, on a, on a, any given week and my dad and I would be leaving with fishing rods or shotguns, but then I would come back during the week and I'd be, you know, I'd be doing some singing lessons or tap lessons. And then I'd be off to baseball or football practice. And then in addition to that, my mom was totally holistic before it was even the, the cool thing to do. We had an orchard in our backyard and she had, she grew all her own vegetables, all her own fruit. Um, she was into, I mean, gnarly health food. And she has sayings like the whiter the bread, the sooner you're dead. And this is back in like 1966, 60s, you know, mid 60s. So that, so it was really, it was an interesting place to live. And I guess it was just kind of part of, growing up in San Diego and Southern California, lots of just stuff that we were exposed to. And that, you know, and that's why I I'm, I'm interested in so many things these days, not just fishing, not just hunting, not just, I just love everything. And having two boys, we, Michelle and I, my wife, um, we, we are always exposing our kids to nature, to music, to all kinds of stuff. So, but my parents were, I would say my mom was really a visionary and so was my dad. You know, he was a teacher. He was a literature teacher. So we always had, you know, great debates around the table about literature and, you know, politics are all, that was always something centered around the table, the positive parts of it, the, you know, whatever, whatever the, the sort of the course of the day was, that's what we talked about. So it was cool. It was a great way to grow up. It sounds amazing. And it's, de I'm definitely jumping ahead and we'll come right back to your childhood. Yeah. But this must've helped with your television care, you know, charisma, because you're so wonderful on camera. You know, it, you know, it's interesting. So this is really funny. So my dad was also a Shakespearean actor. And when I was really small, we would go watch him at the old globe theater and various other, you know, rep theaters around town. Um, so that was always in my life. Right. I was always, you know, I could get up on stage and, you know, I would do singing recitals. I would watch him on stage, but it was never something that, I, I really ever gravitate. I, I never really want, I just did it. So the reason why I really did it is because my mom promised me she'd buy me a drum set if I did four years of all this stuff, because I always wanted to play drums. So that's the reason why I really did it to get that drum set. And then I got the drum set. But um, my sisters, on the other hand, were very, they were really sort of entrenched in theater and commercials and TV. And my twin sister, she had a really, a very good career as a singer. She was a classically trained singer. So um, all of that 
I think it was sort of like secondhand smoke. It was just always there. And I remember, you know, as a kid, so my parents had a really diverse group of friends, right? They had, they had theater people, they had, uh, you know, outdoors people, they had politicians, they had people of religion, like, you know, they had a rabbi friend and they had a priest friend and they would all gather at the house. So we had all this stuff going on. So I, I think all that, you know, all that kind of just rubbed off on me. No, you know, we always got up and did a skit. We always sang, you know, somebody played the piano. So yeah, I think back to your question, I think it was just easy for me to do that. Just being around it. Like I never, it was something I never, like I never had acting lessons, but I do remember when I first started doing TV, they're like, man, you, you know, you, you can nail all this stuff really quickly. And it was just because I had been exposed to it. So, yeah. So, so that once again, that diverse upbringing kind of segued me into that sort of television career that that really was was awesome and really easy it wasn't it wasn't a big deal you know so yeah you always look like you're having fun yeah it was fun um it was easy i never got stressed um they would you know the production team would always you know as you know because you've done tv they'd always throw something on you right well can you do this or you know and it was just like yeah i can do it you know or they'd make cue cards and you know, i can read that or i you know i can do a stand up here and I could do it really efficiently and quickly without like stepping on my stepping over my toes or having to repeat it. So I think part of my TV thing was I was just efficient and I was quick and I was saving the production company's money, you know, and I could just do it. So it was great. So, yeah. Yeah. Now you said 66, but you were not born in 66. I'm assuming that I was, was. I, I, I was born in 66. So my mom, like all of all of the stuff was you know, this all what I'm talking about was, you know, from 66 up through the mid 70s, even the end of the 80s. So, yeah. So, yeah, I was born in 66. I'm 57. What? Not. I, I'm 50. I, yeah, I'm 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 close to 60 now. <laughs> you do not. Them apples. I mean, you know, you do not look even close to it. And and I'm so happy That's, that I'm now putting these on YouTube so that people can see what I'm talking about. There's, <laughs> there's no way I don't I love it. it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Good, good genetics, good diet. I mean, that honestly, my mom, and she passed away. Well, she passed away a month ago and she was 94. Oh, I'm sorry. And but man, 94. she looked, yeah, she looked beautiful. I mean, she, she looked like she was about mid seventies, perfect skin, but she paid attention to her diet. She paid attention. You know, she really, she really, that was, she really, you know, paid attention to that. But also, you know, my family, we have great genetics. My dad was 92 when he passed. My mom, 94. My, my great-grandmother, 101. So it's just, it's there. So it's genetic. But also, being active, um, having kids at an older age. I have a 13-year-old and an 8-year-old. They keep you young, as you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I cannot get old with, with those two rascals That's around. Right. I just can't do it. I mean, they're pushing me constantly. I mean, it's like, hey, dad, baseball. Hey, dad, body surfing. Hey, dad, let's do this. That's it. You know, on and on. You know, let's go snowboarding. Let's go skiing. It's like, oh, you know, so, but that keeps you going. So, it's so yeah. true. It's awesome. And I'm so glad I had kids later on in life because I would not have appreciated them. I really wouldn't have. I got all my stuff out of the way. Then, then I got married and then I had kids. So it, it's worked out perfectly. We have this conversation all the time because Charles is 51. I'm 40. 
And yeah. so we had kids, I mean, Adelaide's five. So we had kids a little later as well. And we feel the exact same way. We're relaxed. We have done so many of the things that a lot of um, our friends who are younger are are desperately trying to do now. And that's right. we enjoy every moment. And like you said, she keeps us really young. It's been, I think I'm probably healthier now than ever. And because I'm so aware of what she's consuming, I'm aware of what I'm consuming as far as diet goes. So it's been great. That's that's right. So, you know, my dad always said your kids are, are are your conscience or your mirror, right? So you sort of, they're your bearing. They're kind of the, like that the, the compass that points north and they always keep you on track. Um, my dad had a great analogy about raising kids. The, the day my first son, Max, was born, my dad, you know, takes me aside. He said, you know, Conway, uh, being a parent is like casting casting a fly or a nymph on a stream, right? You Make the cast, the, the 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 nymph or the fly settles on the water. Okay. Sometimes you want to throw slack in the line and have a dead free drift. And sometimes you want to swing the fly with some tension and then you want to bring it back. He said it's it's tension, it's slack. It's tension, it's slack. It's pulling, letting the kid, you know, reeling the kid in a little bit and then letting the kid go out and, and explore his or her world and then bringing them back. And so that is kind of how I look at parenting. And, and as a young man, I couldn't have done that. I think I would have been so focused on just me and what I want to do. And, you know, so yeah, just being an older parent is so much, so much better. And I, I don't feel the pressure. You know, I'm not, I don't feel the pressure of like establishing a career or a life in addition to being a parent, because they're both very demanding jobs. And yeah. some people can do it. And I admire them. I just could not have done it. Another piece of advice my dad gave but me. He can said, Don't they even... do? Can they do both? Great. I have this conversation. I, 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 I think some can. Lately. I think do some can. I, I, yeah, I, I think I think some can, um, but it's a team effort. You know, really, you have. And, and as husband and wife, it's the balance there because not only are, are you are the are you are you throwing slack and tension to the kids, you have to throw slack and tension to your, to your significant Spouse, other yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. So, so now you're, you know, you're sort of playing this game. So and everything in my life is an analogy to fly casting or something like I that. I love right? it. I just, keep, keep them but, up because that, that is such a great but, way of thinking about it. But, but that's what it is, right? I mean, life is, you know, you can, you think you can have a cast mastered, right? And, and you're, you know, you're on a permit flat, you make the perfect double haul, the line is unfurling and that's your life. And all of a sudden you get hit with a headwind and everything blows to crap. <laughs> what do you have to do? You got to pick it up and do it again. So fly casting is a metaphor for life and it's with raising kids. It's about, you know, your relationship with your wife or husband or significant other. I, that's what it's all about. And it's funny. It, it's just, my dad had all those little, like, because he was a writer and he always had these great little nuggets of just, that would make sense to me. You know, he, if he were a scientist, I, 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 you know, and he was trying to do something very analytical and well, you know, I'd be like, oh, I don't get it dead. But he, he, he articulated it in a very beautiful, graceful way that was literary that I could really, really understand. So, um, but balancing the life, I mean, that's what it's all about. Right. And it's, it's just, it's just like making that fly cast and swinging that fly, you know, tension, slack, tension, slack. And then, you know, ultimately you, you hook a big steelhead or a make on. <laughs> it's so funny to hear you just go straight to steelhead to Mako because to me, they're yeah. just such opposite worlds. And that is actually one of the things I'm most excited to talk to you about today. Um, but when you were younger, okay, so you have this incredible upbringing. 
in school, did you have the, I mean, what was your school life like? Did you graduate, go to college? What was your life like? Yeah. So I, I, I graduated high school. I went to three years of college and I dropped out. Um, and I basically started, I played in a rock band. I toured with a rock band for two years as a drummer. And, um, it, we, what we would do is, is during, during college breaks, we would, we would tour during the spring and then, or the spring and then also the fall breaks. And it, it got to a point where I just, at that time, I really wasn't fishing at all. I was very focused on music and I wasn't happy in school. I just, I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was wasting, really, honestly, I was wasting my time and I was wasting just money paying just to try to find out what I wanted to do. You know, I started out as a biologist and uh, though I love nature, I just, I was never, the math was too challenging for me. I mean, I could, I could visualize and I can contact, could connect with nature and I could tell you a lot about it. But when it got down to the fundamentals and the minutia of the problems and I, I just, it, it wasn't in my head. I was more kind of an artist, right? So toured with this band. Uh, and I remember, um, I, that kind of ran its course too. We were, we were actually, uh, driving into British Columbia. We crossed the bridge and I looked down and I don't even know, I can't remember where this bridge was. And there was a guy fly fishing and I go, you know what? I need to get back to doing that because prior to being so, and we'll get to my early childhood and how I started fly fishing, but seeing that guy fly fishing and I believe he was spay casting. And I'm like, you know, I don't want to be in this bus with these guys in a band. I just, I don't. It's another thing that I, I'm just not into. But you know what? I think I need to be doing that again. So after that tour, I quit the band. And that is when I really started getting back into fishing. You know, my father and I would take trips. I really got into saltwater fly fishing. And then then my second, sort of my second life blossomed into, into a, it, it took a course that was, you know, the reason why we're having this conversation today. Right. Okay. So how does it all, how does it all start um, getting into, I know how you got into fishing. How did you get into fly fishing specifically? So my father, he was a teacher and a very good, he taught a family of, of kids or a family of boys. He taught in an all boy Catholic school. And that family, the father, he, he and my father were good friends, but they owned a lodge called Redfish Lake Lodge in Idaho in Stanley, Idaho. and um, they offered uh, to have our family come up and stay at their lodge. They had a, we had like a, uh, like an Airstream trailer. And they said, what, you know, they said, John and Mary and my mom and dad, come on up, bring the kids, just hang out here all summer. So that's, that's what we did. So my mom and my sisters, they weren't into it. You know, they're like, oh, that's cool. But, you know, we're not into mosquitoes and all that. But my father and I, we went every year from the time I was six until I was, I think, 15. And that was our, that was our time. That was our trip. And it was about roughly two months in the Stanley Basin. And my dad and I fished all the great, uh, you know, rivers in Idaho. We'd go to Henry's Fork. We fished um, Silver Creek, the Salmon River, the Lower Salmon. I mean, and that's what I did. And that's how I learned how to fly. That's how I learned how to, my, that's how I learned how to fly fish for trout. Right. I always, I started fly fishing probably when I was six in San Diego at the local ponds with a, with a, with a little, you know, eagle claw with a popper, eagle claw fly rod with a popper. But I really got into it once we started going to Idaho. And that's what my father and I did. And those, those trips really shaped me 
you know, into the fly, into a, a fly fisherman, uh, one that can, that can, you know, fish trout or, you know, has a greater appreciation for trout and salmon and that kind of stuff. It, it was an amazing place. I mean, we were catching Chinook salmon. We were catching, um, you know, uh, Dolly Varden, rainbow trout. I would hike up. This is a funny story. My dad, he was so, um, he was a disciplinarian, but he would, when we were in Idaho, he'd let me run wild. I mean, literally, he'd go, he would say, here, here's a whistle. If you get in trouble, blow the whistle. I remember one time there were these lakes called the Bench Lakes, and they were three and a half miles from where our airstream was. And we were kind of in a remote kind of area, you know, area. So I hiked, and I think I was nine years old, up to the Bench Lakes all by myself caught a bunch of brook trout and came back down. I got back after dark and I walk into the trailer. My dad's like, where were you? I said, well, I, I hiked up to the bench lakes. He's like, what? <laughs> you hiked up to the bench lakes? And I just did it. So that, that, and that trip, and I can, I can trace this back, built was sort of the, the foundation of, of building confidence in me in the outdoors. because. I always had a confidence being in the woods or being on the ocean. I think that that experience doing that was kind of a rite of passage for me. It was really cool. And I, I, I remember it like it, like it was yesterday. And I did get coming down. It was getting dark and I'm getting nervous. And I thought I was going to get attacked by a bear. And I was, was going to say, crazy. <laughs> aren't there bears? Yeah, there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, but my dad's like, okay. You know, so, and then the next summer, you know, there was a, there was a, uh, a mountain climbing group, really gnarly mountain climber guys. They were called the Idahow Mountaineering Team. And they were full on like John Lennon glasses, cut off shirts, like cut off jeans. I mean, this is in the 70s, okay? Yeah. And they said, and they called, they called me Spud because I was a little teeny kid. He's, they're like, hey, Spud, you want to go climb Mount Habern tomorrow? I'm like, huh? He goes, yeah, we'll take you up there. There's a mountain there called Mount Habern. And these guys took me up and I, I, I roped climbed that with these guys i didn't go to the super steep peak but i mean it was still i mean what i did was insane and i want to say i was 10 or 11 at that time and i remember getting up to the top now i got we got up to the top and with the one guy he looked like john lennon he had the crazy hair and the glasses and and they're up there and they were and they were smoking joints and stuff and i get up there and they had they had um they had a, a six-pack of Coors beer in cans with the old pole tops, right? So this guy that looks like John Lennon, he, I get up there, he goes, well, Spud, you did it. And he cracks it open, he hands me the beer. And I had my first sip of beer at that time. Oh. It was awesome. These guys were so, but but those guys were sort of my, um, they were like, um, they they kind of took me under their wing, but in just, and really kind of just, where they're always checking up on me, hey man, you know, but there were these really hippie, dippy kind of guys, but it was kind of cool, you know, they're, you know, but, but so those experiences really built the foundation for me to have confidence to go out. And, you know, when I first got my first boat, a 16 foot aluminum, I took it 15 miles offshore after my dad said, don't do that. Of course I did it, you know, so, so that's how it, it kind of, it kind of built from that point. I'm just trying to imagine all of the dangerous situations you put yourself into. I mean, rock climbing? Quite, quite a few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was, it was crazy. And honestly, I, I haven't rock climbed. I, I don't think I've rock climbed since. You know, I, I, I think that I, I've done some bouldering, but that was a legit. And it's weird. Maybe I, I just did it, and it was like, ah, that's cool. You know, I don't know. But 
aside from that, it built a foundation in me, uh, something where it built a confidence to go out and, and do other things. Yeah. And your dad would have known that that was important, especially, you know, going into manhood. There's definitely, there has to be a transition there. Yeah. And my dad was interesting. He didn't have a father. He he had a very rough childhood. So he his rites of passage were much different and much more difficult. And honestly, I think he struggled. He didn't know how, you know, in certain ways, he didn't know how to be a dad. You know, he never had a, he never had a role model really in his life. So things like letting me go do that, it's like, he, he never pulled pulled me back. And so flash forward to when Max was born, I think that's what he, he was kind of reiterating that, you know, sometimes you throw slack, sometimes you pull it back. And there were times when he pulled it back for sure. Um, but I think those, those build that foundation building with taking some of those risks were probably him just going, just, just do it and see what happens. Like with my kids, oh my God, I'm like, sometimes I feel like I'm a helicopter parent, you know, you know, don't do this, don't do that. But I do have to step back and I have to let them, you know, explore their, their, you know, their environment. And it's tough to do as a parent. But, you know, so, you know, back to parenting again, you know, you have to kind of let your kids explore their world, make mistakes. Sometimes those mistakes, they break their leg. Like Max has broken his arm like three times, you know, skateboarding, you know, that's what he does. You should see him on a snowboard. He's insane. I mean, it's like, it, but I can't break his his spirit. I can't do that. I just I'm not going to do that. Yeah, we went we went snow. I ski and he snowboards. We went to Mammoth uh, over the winter. They had an insane winter. And oh my gosh, he went down this this section. I'm like, oh my goodness. And I'm like, how in the heck is he going to do that? And he did it. And he came down. Yeah, how was that, Dad? I'm like, that was great, <laughs> but you scared the <laughs> heck out of me. And I'm not going to do it. So yeah. Anyway. <laughs> So wait, so you're in your 20s when you were with the band? I'm trying to figure out how old you were when you made the decision yeah, that maybe so I, it was time I, I, to leave. 18, 19, yeah. Okay. 18, 19, 20, yep. So did you yeah. dive right into fly fishing as a career or did you take some downtime and what did you do to make money? No, so time? okay, so in in so I I had I got a job with the uh with the city wa- city of San Diego's uh, public utilities water department. And I went in as a junior biologist. So I was doing fish creel samples for them, water quality sampling. And so that's what kept, that, that's what paid me. So I would work and then that would fund my fishing. And then, so I went back and forth. And that career, actually, I stuck to that career. I mean, I, I, I continue to have that career up until a month ago when I officially retired from it. So I've always had that. So I worked as within the water department for 40 years. A nine and to five? It was you worked great. a nine to five? No, it wasn't a nine to five. Well, I did, but it wasn't really a nine to five, but it was, so I, I basically managed, um, over the course of my 40 year career, I managed three of the largest wetlands in San Diego County. And on those wetlands, there were reservoirs. So you had all sorts of things that went on with the reservoir. You know, you had fish, you had water quality issues. You had, you had, um, you know, um, maintenance on the dams and on the infrastructure. So I ran all of that at three, three reservoirs. So, yeah. So I always had a nine to five. I always did that. And so that was another thing. Um, there was a point when I was really considering like doing fishing full time. I mean, I was, it, it, things that were really doing well. And I sat back and I thought about it and I had, it, I had invested a lot of time into this, this career um, as, as a wetlands manager for the city of San Diego. And I had moved up to a management point and it was, it was really pretty good. And they, they left me alone and I was in a very remote location in a remote office. And, you know, it wasn't like I had a boss breathing down my neck. 
And I said, you know, what if I can make this work? It could, can I make this work with fishing and this job? And I did. I just made it work because I was really honest and transparent with the city of San Diego in, in my division. And I said, I really want to, you know, uh, pursue this other career in, on, on my own time. And they're like, that's fine. Because some, you know, government agencies don't let you kind of, they call it double dipping. They don't like that at all. But I think what I was doing with fishing was so unique. They're like, yeah, okay, cool. Plus there was a science, science uh, component to it. I was at that time I was out there, we're tagging Makos. I was doing some research for scripts and that. So they're like, oh, this is kind of cool. And I worked with a lot of biologists. So, so, so that worked. And then um, the TV thing came about. And the TV thing came about, I want to say it was 2004. Anyway, Men's Journal magazine came out and they did an article. And so when that article launched, I mean, everything blew up. I got a call from ESPN. Hey, you know, this article's great. Would you like to, you know, host one of our TV shows? I'm like, what? Anyway. What was the article about? So at that about? point, it was just about me fly fishing for Makos. And the title was, I think it's, I think it said bonefish, tarpon, or what is it? Bonefish, tarpon, or what else? And a big question mark. And then it wrote, it was a one page with my photo and a jumping make on there. And I'm telling you, so at that point, I was guide, actively guiding. That was my you next know, question. I, so you were still, you were guiding for Makos and we still need to get back to how you even started fly fishing, fishing for oh, Makos. Yeah, yeah. We'll get back to that later. So, yeah, okay. Okay, okay so, um, so at that point, I was actively guiding, you know, for me, it was kind of in general guiding for yellowfin tuna, whatever was around, but Makos were kind of my focus. Um, and this article came out and I remember uh, before the article came out, I would come home and, and I had an old analog answering machine, you know, with the tape. And you'd, you'd walk in and you'd have like three messages and it, you know, you'd press a button and eh, hi, this is Bill from Chicago. Uh, I'd like to come make a fishing. Okay. Beep. Eh. Hi, this is Frank from Texas. You know, that kind of thing. Right. And typically I had three to five a day and I was, it was okay. Cause I had a day, I had a day gig. Right. So after that, that article launched, I, I walked in, I looked at my desk and I think I had, I think there were the number 30 was on the display. And it was blinking, meaning that it couldn't take any more messages. Like, what the heck's going on here? And the article had come out like a week before or something like that. And I didn't even know it. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> so I started answering all all the or listening to all the messages. And they were every one of them, they were for fly fishing for Mako sharks. You know, you had the guy from New York. Hey, this is uh, you know, Charles from New York City. Uh, I really want to try that Mako shark thing, you know, and then you had the guy for, you know, from Florida. Hey, this is a uh, Frank from Florida. That Mako shark thing looks great. You know, I do a lot of big game fishing, you know, on and on and on and on and on. I'm like what the, so I'm writing all the stuff down, the numbers. And then the last message was, was a guy. I was like, hi, this is uh, Mike Garner from ESPN. And, uh, we saw that article. We we're flying back from, uh, wherever it was. And uh, we saw the article. Hey, would you call us, please? We want to talk to you. And I thought it was one of my buddies playing a joke on me. I really did. So I never called him back. No. So two days later, <laughs> I get the same message. Hey, this is Mike Garner. Yes, man. Could you please call us back? We want to talk to you. So I call the guy back, and they're like, "We want you to audition for this this show that we're doing." I'm like, "Audition, what? audition that for for fly fishing." It was the show was called In Search of Fly. Was it? Yeah, In Search of Flywalk. And they had two hosts kind of older posts and they're like we really got to mix it up we got to get some young blood in there you know i'm like okay whatever so anyway that led to an audition on henry's fork which i 
fished as a kid and I had a wire and they didn't know that. So I got up there and I mean, I, and, and we hit the, uh, the salmon fly hash and I abs. So I outfished, I outfished the host because I'm teamed up with her and I totally outfished her and she was not happy about that. And I was like, anyway, it was really a kind of a weird like dynamic anyway. So I got the gig. She didn't, well, she, she, I think she was on it for a couple of, I think, so I, they replaced her with an, with another, with another host. So it was, well, I was co-host of the show with, with a, with a, a lady named Cindy Garrison. So we co-hosted the oh, show. Oh yeah, right. Was, with yeah, Cindy was, Garrison, was, for sure. Yeah. So anyway, it was great. So that was my first step into TV, but it all started back with that article on Mako Sharks. So anyway, that, that was kind of a weird kind of thing into TV, but. Yeah. Oh, I love it. So how did you start fly fishing for Makos then? So um, I had a friend, he was a commercial fisherman and he wanted to learn how to fly cast. So I taught him how to fly cast. He said, Hey, you know, I want to take you out and I want to, um, I, I want to fly fish for some you know, Bonita and tuna or Bonita. And, and I think it was yellowtail. Anyway, so we went out in his boat and we're talking and we're catching all these fish and He's like, what did he say? Something like, do you know anything about mako sharks? I'm like, not really. He said, they're great. They're a great game fish. I'm like, why? He goes, they jump 20 feet in the air. I'm like, really? He goes, and and he said, I know that they'll hit a fly. I'm like, really? So I went home and I started doing all my research and reading everything about makos and realizing they are a great game fish. Then there was a guy, there were two guys, Steve Abel from Abel Fly Reels. Um, and also a guy named Nick Kirchion, both West Coast guys. And they had both fly fished for Mancos. So I started calling them and talking to them. They're like, oh, man, they're, they're great. Uh, you can sight fish to them. They jump. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so it kind of evolved into me starting to take this little 16-foot aluminum boat of mine out and targeting Mako sharks. And that's how it just started. I started getting a lot of intel from my commercial fishing buddies. They'd say, oh, yeah, go out to the drop you know, at, at 600 feet and just look for them there or, you know, fish inside, you know, just little tidbits of information. And then I just kind of built sort of this knowledge base. And then that's how, that's just how it started. And then it got to the point where I needed to get a bigger boat because I was chumming up some really big Makos in a 16 foot aluminum. I'm like, okay. So then I got a bigger boat, like a more of a commercial type boat. And then that's when I really started guiding for Mako sharks. And then the article in Men's Journal came out and then the clients and then on and on and on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. I have questions for you about Mako Sharks. Sure. Okay. So how big can they get for starters? Uh, 1,300 pounds. 
How yeah, many they feet get thir- 13, 14 feet long. Yeah. Are there, have there ever been any attacks on humans? <clears throat> you know, yeah, there, ha- there, there has been, yeah. Um, in fact, there was one off San Diego about 10 years ago, and they thought it was a great white, but it was actually Mako because they found the tooth lodged in the, in the person's head. So th- the person was on a kayak, the kayak flipped over and then got attacked by a shark, or the shark may have attacked the kayak. And that's a typical behavior of a large mako. A big breeding mako shark, they're very aggressive. So if there's an eight-foot kayak kind of in their area, they'll come over and they will attack it. So probably what happened is the mako shark attacked it. The person fell out. The mako shark came back around and took a bite. And then um, they don't really know, but I think it got, you know, it got an artery or something in the person. They just bled out. But they are very aggressive. So the thing about a mako is they're they're much more aggressive. I mean, their their mindset is more aggressive than a great white. They're very, they're really, they're sneaky. Uh, they don't play fair, right? They they they're, they are they're dirty fighters. They come in and they sneak up on you and then they disappear. And then all of a sudden, they they'll come up and attack. Um, a great white, pretty much, they're in front of you. You kind of know they're there, you know, and they'll come up in an ambush, but they're they're more, I don't want to say docile, but they're more sort of, they're like an <laughs> elephant. They're kind of big, right? Whereas a mako is like, yeah, a yeah, mako is very random and they're like a, like a cheetah and they are just very cat-like. And it, people know cats, their light switch can get turned on like that to attack or it can turn off. So they're very unpredictable. And so, you know, they, so the ones that we see around here current, well, over the last, I don't know, eight years are anywhere from you know 40 pounds up to a thousand pounds in fact i had two days ago i had an 800 pounder hook i mean and you know took the the fly right at the surface right at the boat but that fish pretty much attacked the boat it came in on the boat circled around bumped the boat and then kept circling we threw the fly out it took the fly boom so um i the point i wanted to make was the reason why people don't get attacked by mako is because they live in water that's that's 100 feet or deeper mostly great whites are on the beach makos live in deep water that's basically it and here in san diego the 100 water the 100 foot mark pinches in very close to shore so but not 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 as close as to, to freak people out but honestly if a mako got in the surf line if that's where they live, there would be many more attacks on people because they are just wired like that, especially big ones. Big ones, they eat the same food food item as a great white. You know, they eat porpoise, they eat seals, sea lions, big tuna, swordfish. So they're eating the same thing. They just in, inhabit a different environment. How does that then translate into fly fishing, them being so unpredictable? So uh, basically, so the way I fish them is I, I, I chum them to the boat. And so you um, have to chum them. You don't have to. No, you can get them when they're finning on the surface. And that, that's really a great way to target them. But you have a window. It's usually in August when they're up on the surface and you can do it. It's very tarpon style. And you can lead. I mean, you can throw to those fish and lead them and they'll chase the fly down and you'll hook them. It's great. You got You have to have the right people to do that. Most a lot of people that fish with me, they don't have the patience to do that. And it's 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 a low percentage shot. Um you know, if you have, if you book five days for that, you'll get one day where you'll, you'll have shots at those fish. So, you know, I have guys that do it and that's all they want to do, but by and large, I'm taking people out and I'm, I'm chumming with, with fresh bluefin tuna. But anyway, so what happens when they come to the boat, mako sharks, the reason why they hit a fly is because they 
tip, they, they eat seabirds, right? And they'll see a, you know, a seabird on the surface floating around or moving. And when that seabird moves off the surface, it, it creates a reaction and the shark chases the bird down and tries to, to bite it, right? So these flies, I use poppers, I put them on the surface and I honestly think they, I think the makos think there's some sort of seabird and they're, they're not, the flies are about like that. But when the mako comes in, they're, they're typically looking up and when they grab those, when they grab those flies, it's not a very violent grab. It's a grab like this. It's a very soft grab, boom. And then they, they turn away with it. And that's when you set the hook. So they're not like attacking it and all that. It's a very soft, like an exploratory grab, boom, like that. So, but I think also when we get them into the slick, I'll do a bait and switch technique on a lot of them. So it's sort of like what you do with Marlin. Marlin comes into a spread. You have a skirt stuffed with a belly strip. You put it in front of the Marlin or the, or the sailfish and that turns them on, right? They get focused in on that, on that, um, on that teaser, right? And then the guy throws the fly out and then the sailfish Marlin or Mako will turn around and grab the fly. So that's, that's a technique I use a lot because it gets those fish worked up. But either way, they're either feeding on seabirds or you get them bait and switched up with, with a marlin skirt and a belly strip. So it's really interactive with the fishermen. So if I tease one of those fish up, I'll pull the teaser out. Now that shark is just looking around for something to attack. You throw out that popper and it looks like a marlin popper, but it's orange or red. Yeah, they see that and then they'll, they'll go ahead and grab it. And that take is, is more aggressive. They'll, they'll swipe at that thing pretty hard. So, so you throw it out one pop bloop, and they'll come over and grab it. So. So if you're fishing them like marlin, are you doing kind of what we do down here where we've got our boat, we're making froth, we've got the daisy chain, and we look kind of like a big school of tuna? You, you can do that. I've done that. Um, but when I do that, I use one teaser only. That's okay. it. And and what I'll do is I'll also drag, I'll have my, I'll have a chum bucket going also because you need that, you need that to bring those sharks in. The big sharks, think about it. You know, if you just have a, a teaser out there, they're, they, they don't want that. They want the sense of the, of some some food item right so i fish out of a 24 foot center console bay boat and that's pretty small and then if i have this fresh bluefin tuna you know scent coming off it they're going to think it you know my boat is some sort of food item and that'll get those big makos to come to the boat if you were just basically trolling a spread you might pick up smaller makos you know the, the little 40 pounders will come up and grab that but I, t- I like targeting the, the larger fish because they're so dynamic and they jump and they're, it's, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. So when I do that, I'll have one teaser, one bait and switch teaser out on either the port or the starboard side. And I'll troll that back in probably the second, second wake of my boat. And we'll just kick along at about three or four knots. And I'll be working kind of a, kind of a fathom curve or a depth line right where i think those sharks are if i see them finning around that's when i definitely do that because they'll they'll break off and you can get those fish to come to the boat um so that's one way you do it and once again you have to have the right client to do that but it can be really 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 success the success rate is great if if you have a a lot of makos around it's awesome because it's just like fly fishing for marlin or sailfish the thing is the makos jump like 20 feet. I mean, they'll jump right at the boat. It's insane. And then you're, then I have to chase them down the boat. So the other way is just setting, finding your, um, your productive area, right? A, a fathom curve or a margin and figuring out what the current's doing. And then just setting this, this chum slit and just waiting and just wait. So this down now, this is like big game hunting, right? So 
imagine you're a bow hunter and you're, you know, you're targeting an elk or a mule deer, you know, you're, you're oftentimes you're going to sit and wait for that opportunity to come right in front of you. Right. So that's what we do with the Mako sharks. So now that is big game hunting. I set a slick in a productive area where I think they're going to be at a certain time at the tide and we drift. So we'll drift along this, this edge or this area, or I'll drift into the productive area knowing that, okay, these sharks are going to be at point A at two o'clock. So I need to start outside and make sure at two o'clock when the tide hits where I want it to be, I'll be in this zone and then they'll be there. And that's how it works. So they're fairly predictable uh, in the summertime when the tides are moving in and out. They're kind of like tarpon, they migrate up and then they kind of, they migrate, they, um, they come through in like pods. Like you'll have a your first pod of fish in May. And then like right now in July, we have just pod after pod coming through, you know, just boom. So every day you're catching different fish, but they're moving through. And then after they move through, they go North, they go up around Catalina Island, which is about 80 miles North of us. And they'll kind of hover around up there. Then they come back down this way uh, in the fall. But we have consistent flow of large Makos all the way through October. And then we will have them, do the 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 turnaround all the way through november so we'll get them all through there but they're different fish um so it's very similar to a tarpon migration right um but that's basically that that's the game right there and it's a lot of so hunters really get this especially when you're sitting and you're you're sitting on a slick and you're waiting they you know, they're anticipating that opportunity to come by the boat and you know sometimes that opportunity doesn't doesn't i mean present itself until three, four in the afternoon, but that, that shark could be 500 pounds. I mean, there's no joke. And that's not an uncommon fish to see this time of year. And you may see two or three of them throughout the course of the day. So, um, so there's this sort of mystery to this, right? If you're patient, if you wait, there's anticipation. And then all of a sudden, boom, hey, there us. it is. And <laughs> well, it, it's really weird because a lot of times they don't, you know, people, you always get this, Hey, do they come with their fin up? And it's like, no, not really. No, they, they sneak into the boat and all of a sudden they just appear. Like they're very crafty and sneaky. They don't want to show themselves. And all of a sudden, boom, there they are. Once they locate the boat, then it's like, okay, then we go to work. Okay. And I'll say, Hey guys, let's get to work. I'll get my teaser out. I'll get them worked up. The guy makes a cast. Boom. It's, it's almost like a 95% shot. If the guy gets a good cast with a good angle, he or she will hook that fish. Then after that, who knows what happens? I don't know. I mean, it it those sharks can do pretty much anything they want. And you have to be very, very, I have to be very careful um, that they're not hooked too close to the boat because they will jump in the boat. You do That's not nasty. want a 500 pound mako on the boat. They will, they'll kill you. I mean, they will. There's no joke. So, so those, the big, so the smaller makos, it, it's not as sort of ramped up in terms of like, okay, guys, let's, let's, you know, keep it together here. But once you get to three, four, 500 pounds, it's a whole different ballgame. And people have to, you know, really take direction. Well, Hey, put the cast here. Don't, you know, don't do this. Don't do that. Don't let the fly dangle over the side of the boat. Cause the shark will come over, sneak up under the boat and grab the fly right at the boat. And you don't want that. Cause then it'll potentially jump in the boat. So it, you know, it really ramps up when you get to those, those larger fish. And then of course, uh, you, you, you tie into a thousand pounder, you will hook them on, on the fly. I mean, and they'll, they will hit a fly that big. Getting those fish to the boat is, 
<laughs> pretty much impossible. But what, what you will get is the most amazing aerial display you'll see in fly fishing. It is unbelievable. And you've, uh, you've probably seen some of those photos on my social media. Those are all like five to thousand pound mako sharks. And I mean, that's what they do. And they don't do it once. They jump six, seven times. And, and when they jump 50 feet from the boat, an 800 pound shark looks like Shamu the whale coming out. It, it is yeah. insane. And, and they have an incredible hang time. And people are like, oh my God, did that just happen? It's insane. It is absolutely insane. What's the biggest one you've landed on the fly or had have seen landed? Uh, so we got one that was probably 650 pounds. And that, that got to the boat in 45 minutes. I couldn't believe it. And it was a leadered fish. So those big fish, I have a, a kind of a specific leader system. I use longer leaders because I, I, don't, I, don't do I don't do a traditional release on them. A traditional release is I have a stick, a release stick, put it in the corner of the shark's mouth and I pop it off. And I can do that to fish up to about up to about 300 pounds. I can do that if, if that fish cooperates. They have to cooperate though. Some of these sharks don't cooperate and then it's just like, you just have to kind of break them off. But what we'll do is, you know, you hook these large fish and we'll chase them down with the boat because you have to. If not, they're going to, you're going to dump all your fly line and all your backing. I mean, it's gone because Mako's, they, they swim 40 miles an hour in the water. Oh I mean, they, they will heat, they will heat up a reel like, like you'll put your hand on the side of the reel and your hand will burn. It's that, that insane. So we have to chase them down. So once we chase them down, then it's sort of this cat and mouse game. Uh, they're out there. You get close to them. They move away. Okay. Then they come back and you get close. They move away. So it's just back and forth, back and forth. That could take three, four hours. Uh, you know, the one that we got to the boat in 45 minutes, the fish, uh, grab a fly, jump four times, I think four or five times. And then just basically was up on the surface and I slid in on it and it was really calm. And I, I got the leader and I just popped the leader off because I use a, a really light bite tippet on those or a really light, well, lighter tippet section in there. It's like 40 pounds because then I can just break it off. I don't have to get close to those fish. And then they're they're good to go. I also use barbless hooks and they will shake that fly right out of their mouth. So it's not like, you know, they're, they're not hanging around with a bunch of like you know, stuff sticking in their mouth. So it's all barbless hooks. The poppers slide up the leader so they'll float on the surface so I can get those back because I, I feel you know, a shark that has anything hanging off of them, it messes up their hydrodynamics and it makes them weak. So if they can get all that out of their mouth quickly, they're fine. And, and these fish can, I've seen them shake those flies out of their mouth. So, but, so that's basically it. That's how you handle a big Mako. So yeah, 650, but I, I, I mean, I've hooked them. I mean, this year, I don't know how many I've hooked that have been in that 700, 800 pound range. I mean, it's insane. It's crazy. But we just don't land those. They're just too damn big. And honestly, if a guy's on that fish for two hours, he's like, break it off, dude. They don't want to deal with it because it is too much. It really is. It's just too much. And I'm like, yeah. okay, cool. Pop it off. So, and yeah. no one's but gripping, grinning at Big Mako. No, no, not at all. No. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Do it. Well, you know what they do, though? I mean, they get these dynamite shots of it jumping. And I always say, that's the shot you want. You want that framed in your office because that's what it's all about. With the fly hanging out of its mouth. And they're like, yeah, that that's it. I don't want to get that thing around the boat. Because honestly, when these big ones get around the boat, guys are like, oh, my God, I got to hook that thing. I'm like, yep. They're like, oh, yeah. I mean, they're like freaked out because they've never seen anything that big. You know, a 10-foot Mako just, I mean, going around the boat, checking you out. No fear. Makos are the only fish in fly fishing that actually hunts the angler down. 
they're hunting you down, you know? So think about that. It's not you like mean, tarpon like fishing. In, like you individually seeing you in the boat? They will roll up and it, it, because you have to look at my boat. It's a bay boat. It's very, it's, it's a shallow draft boat. I have very low freeboard. It's like a flats boat, a big flats boat. They will roll up and basically like look at you. And when an angler sees that, they're like, oh my God. And these guys go, oh my. And these are like hardened tarpon, marlin, big game hunters. And they're like, man, I've never felt that like terrified in my life. <laughs> I'm like, awesome. Let's hook it on a fly. You know, so. I will say, yeah. because I, I've done some, I did a, a trip with some biologists down in South Australia, um, tagging and taking samples from great white sharks and in a cage and making eye contact because you actually do make eye contact with these things. It, yes, you it's, do. it's terrifying. And, and they're, they're, they're no dummies. I mean, everyone's like, Oh, it was a mistake. It didn't know you were a human. Well, everything I've experienced, they knew full well, I was a human. Um, but I was well, curious about your experience. Oh yeah, no, they stare. So I'm, I'm on the, the stern of my boat on a, I stand up on a little platform and I will, watch these sharks come around the stern and roll up and look at me and then they'll bite the outboard motor like they'll bite it and they'll you know they'll, they'll spin the boat around they'll, they'll grab the anti-cavitation plate and the keel and, and and try to move the boat around and while they're doing that they're looking up at me it's it's intimidating and the other thing is when i'm teasing those sharks in like the big ones will stay on the surface and all of a sudden you'll see them like charge the boat and they dive deep and what they're doing is now they're deep and now they're circling under the boat, waiting for that teaser to go back out. And what they'll do is as I reel that teaser back in, a lot of times they'll they'll attack it right at the boat and they'll jump out of the water for it right at the boat. So for me, I have to be very careful. So when I see that happen, I, I typically don't throw the teaser until I see the shark up on the surface again, because I've had them almost jump in the boat. I mean, and it is terrifying when you have a shark that big. I mean... I mean, coming, charging at the, I mean, literally coming straight up underneath you and they come up and basically they're, they're face to face with me straight up and down and then they fall back in. It is, it's crazy. <laughs> and I've had, I've had anglers hook them too close to the boat and they have jumped. I mean, literally right at the boat, right at the gunnel rail. Thank God they've leaned away from the boat. I, I've, I've been in a few situations where if they would have leaned in, they would have crushed well, first of all, if people were standing there, they would have crushed them, but also they would have crushed the center console. I mean, so so one interesting thing that's going on here, the fish tip are getting bigger and bigger every year. There's something going on with our fishery, and I think it's the food item. We have a greater presence of bluefin tuna here over the last 10 years. I mean, big, giant, you know, bluefin, three, 400 pounds. The mako sharks are eating those. So the larger food item brings in a larger predator, and that's exactly what's going on. Because when I first started doing this, your typical, a big mako shark was 200 pounds. That was a big one. Now you'd get a lot of 80s and 100s, but a big one was like, oh, that's a great fish. 200 pounder these days, like, Shh, all right, whoopity doo da, you know? And now it's like, you've got these big, like gorilla type makos hanging around. So, and I'm still fishing out of the same boat. <laughs> so it's like, the boat hasn't gotten bigger, just the sharks have. So, so I, I have need to kind of, well, yeah, I know. But I know, but the thing is about the small boat, and I fished these big makos on big on bigger boats. They come in really deep, and you I can't get that connection with those fish. I can't get them to do what I want. And I think that my boat is not a threat to them. It's some sort of food item, and they come to it with no fear. Even a boat with a center console with a t top on it, they they're very they're much more shy. So 
I think my boat is the perfect boat for this. Uh, so, but what that, what, what that means is I have to really up my safety game with these larger fish, you know, so longer casts, making sure the boat is started up before we hook the fish, moving away from the fish when we hook them, that kind of stuff. And, and making sure the client or the angler isn't like just dangling the fly and making really bad casts because that bad cast could result in some, some serious danger. Yeah. As far as popular, as far as, um, size goes and even population, did they used to cull sharks in California like they did here in Australia? No, but they had a commercial season on them. I, I, I they, I, I don't think they did. I, they were a commercial targeted fish for a long time. Mako sharks were makos and threshers. Um, and what happens? Uh, what happens now is typically swordfish that you buy in the store is mako sharks. Is mako shark because the, the steaks look similar. They look identical. They taste identical. So it's kind of this weird thing that goes on with commercial fishing. The, the commercial angler will buy, will catch a mako. They'll sell it to a broker. The broker will sell it to a restaurant or a fish market. The fish market restaurant will sell it as swordfish at a marked up price. It happens all the time. They're allowed so, to do that. No, they're not, but they do because because there's no way you can really regulate it because the flesh is so similar. You can't tell the difference. Even the skin is very similar. And honestly, there aren't enough game wardens to go around and like test every single, you know, to, t- to test every swordfish stay. Same thing happens with scallops, right? So scallops are basically carved out of bat ray wings, right? They basically cut them out and they sell them as scallops. So yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but go. I do know that I will a- absolutely kill a shark to eat it. So is that with all sharks? Because I won't buy sword. I love swordfish. I don't buy it because I don't want to... I don't know. I'm just not comfortable yeah. with it down here, but I would absolutely take home a shark. Are there any other sharks that taste like swordfish? Uh, not real. I mean, threshers are very good eating. Yeah, they're very good. But yeah, the mako is just unique in that it, it because it does because it feeds on swordfish too. It's, it's one of its mm-hmm. primary food items. Yeah. So yeah. Right. Um, so is the commercial fishery still happening then, or did they shut that down mm-hmm. because everyone was crying? It, it, they didn't shut it down. It just lost interest. I think shark keeping sharks in general was not a, you know, and also, you know, uh, sharks are high in mercury because of bioaccumulation. So people are more conscious of that now. So they're not eating those, those things that are, that are accumulating, you know, all that stuff. Um, but also we have bluefin tuna here now talk about bioaccumulation, but, um, that is taking the place because we have so many bluefin people would much rather eat bluefin than mako sharks. So that's good for me that the makos aren't being impacted by the general public or even commercial fishing. So, and I do all catch and release. I've always, I've never killed a mako. I have, I've had people offer me a ton of money to get a mako for the record books. And I just can't do it. I just, I fundamentally can't do that. So, um, but, and I always say, Hey, they're great evening. Go to the fish market. You'll, you'll probably find some there. Right. Okay. What about tagging? Are you part of any programs? I I, I am with uh, the Department of Fish and Wildlife. They just started up a new program, actually. We're going to start tagging hopefully this fall. Um, I did some tagging for Scripps Institute of Oceanography about 15 years ago. Right. Um, we, we did some satellite tags. Didn't gather a lot of information on that. Um, and then I, I've done spaghetti tags uh, for the Department of Fish and Wildlife also, which are basically those yellow, just, you know, like spike tags but you know it's interesting makos don't get a lot of attention like great whites do um they're highly pelagic they don't get the attention because great white is i mean that's like 
that's the premier fish, right? Great whites are protected, makos aren't. Makos, you can catch two makos a day per per boat, 365 days a year. They're not even protected. Oh. So, which is interesting. And I, I, I think that's really something that has to happen because they truly are the offshore apex predator. I mean, they and they really need to be managed. And I think uh, moving forward, I think National Marine Fisheries are going to start managing them, managing them much better. Um, uh, but it's complex. I mean, you talk a government agency involved in managing fish stocks. It's there are a lot of politics involved. But I, I do think that um, we're moving towards more shark conservation, which is great. It's really good. And I'm not. I'm not. I'm not an anti. I'm not a. An, you know, if somebody wants to keep a shark, great. But the limits are too high. I think, and I think they ought to have seasonal. They should, in my opinion, they shouldn't be killing big breeding females, which that happens because it's kind of this macho thing. Guys come back to the dock with a thousand pound mako. They cut it open and then the babies spill all over the dock. That's not great optics, you know. Mm-hmm. And honestly, those fish should not be taken. So I think a smaller mako is great, one a year or maybe one. I, I don't know. But they have to get more progressive on that sort of uh, on that. But but I think we're moving in that direction. I'm surprised to hear you say that they only went about 80 miles because I would have assumed that their migration route was gonna was longer than that or farther than well, that. Well, no, it is, it is. So what they do is they move into San Diego in May and then they go up and then they kind of circle back. They kind of hang around. It's called the Southern California Bite during the summer. And then as we move into fall and winter, they go down south. We think. We just don't know. See, this is where tagging would really be valuable. Yeah. I've been off Cabo San Lucas in, in the in the winter, and I've seen lots of makos down there. So I think these fish probably migrate down off Cabo. Maybe they head out west to Hawaii, something like that. So, but there just really is not a lot of information known on them. And then in August, when you see them in the shallows, are they sunning? What's the reason for being subsurface? Okay, so they're they're so this is a breeding area for mako sharks. So what happens? The big females come up in May, and they start breeding in May, June, July. So they start having their pups. Okay. So they have live birth and you'll see little teeny makers swimming around like that, you know, and, and those are just recently pups. So what happens, the female will have her pups and then the males will they'll immediately mate right after that. And oftentimes you'll see the females with bites at like big bite marks. So that's the male coming up and grabbing onto her and mating. And then they separate the big females go up North and the little males usually hang around San Diego. Or, or the Southern California bite. But see, this is all different now because the big females are hanging around here more now. So things are really changing. But also, they're seeing, you know, lots of big females off of Long Beach as well, off Catalina. So I think we're just establishing two different colonies or two different, you know, populations of makos now. And once again, it's the food item, right? You have big food item. If I'm a big breeding female, I don't have to swim to Long Beach. I can just hang out here and you know, eat porpoise, eat bluefin tuna, and just hang out here until it gets too cold, we I'll migrate back down to Mexico or maybe over to Hawaii. Right. This is so interesting. Is it true that if you lay a shark on its stomach that it will automatically throw up all of its guts? I don't know. I don't know. You haven't had I've never laid a makeup. boat? No, no. Well, I have, but it was, it was trying to get out of the boat and attack me. So, yeah. I don't... So... Makos are very hard to, to handle. You cannot, you cannot, you know, great whites, they, they've done great studies on them. They brought them up and they're, they're pretty docile. You, you stop a mako shark in the water, they go crazy. It's like sticking an electrical cord in, in water. I mean, they, they just electrify. They're very dangerous. So I don't know. I, I, and they're always moving. 
you can't you can't take them and flip them over. If you did, they'd flip right back over. They're like right. a missile. They're like they're just they're just an amazing machine. So they um, sound yeah. amazing. They sound fascinating. They are. They're a, they are the most fascinating shark. And even the way their their makeup, their sort of their body structure, pointed nose, eyes set forward, short pec fin, short dorsal fin, a really big keel on their t- you know right before their tail. They're built totally for speed, speed and killing. That's all they do. And when they attack. They get behind their prey. So this is a manco. They get right behind it and they'll they'll take a they'll bite the tail off of whatever they're attacking. And that that food item or that prey will start floundering in the water and the manco will circle around and boom, hit them again and hit them again. It's really super violent. Yeah. And they're always their approach is always from behind. They they they, they never come in front of anything. It's always sneaky from behind. And then they pick that up uh, that opportune moment, boom, they grab it. They're like a heat-seeking missile, basically, and that's what they are. They're just a missile, and they 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 say they go forty miles an hour. I swear, I've seen those things go. I mean, sixty. I mean, they blow through a chum slick. They'll chase down a tuna. They'll chase down a porpoise. I mean, it's amazing to watch those things move. Um, so, and I think their burst speed is. I think they're they they are the fastest fish next to the swordfish in terms of burst speed. And and a, and a swordfish is the body the the body key or the keel at the tail is is the same is the same as a mega. So the burst speed is what it's all about. Yeah, they're they're incredible, incredibly, just awesome, dangerous, cool, just great fish. <laughs> so hearing how passionate you are for them, do you still have that level of passion now for a twelve inch trout? Absolutely. Are you kidding me? I love it. Oh my gosh. There's nothing better than going up and and casting to little brown trout or brook trout with like an elk hair caddis on an old fiberglass fly rod. I love that so much. Why? Because it, it brings me back to when I was a kid. That's what it is. And I still love it, but it, it's more the experience because my day-to-day fly fishing life is big, you know, big and dangerous and this and that. So I, I love going and doing the small things with my kids, with my wife, and just enjoying it. You know, it's not like intense. It's just so relaxing. And to watch that trout just come up and, and slurp that elk hair caddis or a royal wolf or whatever, some big attractor pattern like a stimulator. Oh, my gosh. It's the best. And the setting with the river. Oh, my God. It's it's awesome. Yeah. So it's I love it. experience. That, it just is because it – because – my fishing life, as I said, is so intense. I mean, it's it's intense from the time I leave my house to the time I get back because I'm always walking this razor's edge of what's going to happen next. How big is that fish going to be? Is the fish going to jump on the boat? Is this, you know, blah, 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 that I can go do that other stuff and just really be relaxed. And think back of what really got me into fly fishing. And that is that dry fly, that fiberglass rod that elk hair caddis and that trout coming up and rising and taking it off the surface. That That's where it really started. Yeah, I get it. What about a book? Did you ever end up get a, around to writing a book on the sharks? I did. Uh, no, not on sharks. Yeah, I'm going to do that now, now that I'm retired because I'm officially retired from my city job or my government job. I am going to write a book and I, it's just, I've got it kind of mapped out. Um, so I think this next year I'm going to kind of get serious about it, <laughs> but I've got so many great images, so many great stories. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I've got 25 years of some of the craziest stories, but not only stories about the fishing, but the people and just, you know, my sort of 
my take on observing these fish and observing how clients react to them and just fishing on the open ocean in general. There's so many stories that are kind of, that are that can be weaved into that. And in addition to all the great photos I have, I mean, I've been so lucky to fish with some of the greatest photographers around. I mean, you know, Matt Harris. Oh my gosh. He's insane. He's great. Pat Ford, all, Al Quattucci, all these guys have great photos and they've all been willing to, to help me out when I get to it. So um, I, yeah, I would read that book. Some, I would definitely read yeah, that I, book. Yeah. And it'll be a coffee table book. It's not, I'm not going to get into, well, you know, you're gonna have to chum around the full moon. I, I don't, I don't want to do that stuff. I, I could probably write a technical book, which I have, you know, I've been basically talking about it for years. So I could write that pretty quickly, but I don't want to, I really don't want to do it. I want to write about the overall experience of a Mako shark and how great they are and how, you know, how they really, they do change people's lives in interesting ways. When somebody encounters something that big at the boat, something happens to them. They're like, wow. As I said, they're being hunted down. I mean, this may be the first experience they have ever encountered with a large predator around them, right? And they're like, holy moly. It really gets you close to, like I said, the razor's edge of life. You, there you are, you're looking at it. And so those are the things I would, I would write about. Being humbled. It, it, you got it. Yeah, big time. Nature, hu- nature humbles you no matter what. It, I don't care if it's a shark or even a brook trout or what, the ocean. The ocean is another thing. Being raised on the ocean. That is the that is the most powerful thing in the world. She rules the world, and you know it's and and the, the mako shark is a metaphor for the ocean. They're just you know they're fluid, they're powerful, they're beautiful. They give life, but they also take it away from you, and so you have to respect it, right? You have to really respect it. Yeah, no doubt. So, what are you going to do now? The fact that you're retired, and mm. besides writing a book. I'm still guiding. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so are you going to ramp I'm, it up though? Guide more? Are you going oh, to maintain oh, yeah. your schedule? Oh, no, I'll, I don't know. I'm, I'm enjoying it. I, I, when I say I'm going to scale back, I never do. I just ramp it up. I just keep yeah. ramping it up. Uh, but I think this, th- this fishery is really morphing into something very unique where the big game flying or like true big game get flying. And I think it's something I'm really, really enthused about. I, I really, I'm excited every day I hit the dock. I, I know that uh, the folks who fish with me will have the opportunity of a lifetime to hook the biggest fish they will ever hook on a fly, sight fishing to it, and we potentially could change their life. I mean, how awesome is that? So that's what gets me going. And then aside from that, uh, I mean, I'm going to obviously continue to engage with my kids. We're going to surf. We're going to snowboard, ski. We're going to play baseball. They love baseball. They love lacrosse. My wife and I were, you know, hopefully we'll be taking some vacations. <laughs> um, but she's a big part of, she's a big part of my life. I mean, she, yeah. she fishes and I mean, yeah, I mean, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be great. And I, 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 now I can really do kind of like what I want. Not that I have not always done what I want, but you know, so yeah, I, I'm in a really great space. Yeah. Good. I feel like I have a million things that I've missed. Um, asking you just as you know the little the little things that you've experienced growing up or the stories and and I think I probably just have to wait for the book but is there anything yeah. in particular that I've missed that is glaringly obvious I mean I know you have sponsors and all I know you've done a million yeah. things in your resume yeah. but is there anything glaringly obvious that I've missed about your life that's made you who you are today 
Ah, oh, man. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not really, I, I'm sort of this, I'm a, I'm a sum of a lot of different parts, right? Whether it was being raised in a very, a family that was accepting for, accepting of everything, whether it was arts, music, religion, you know, whatever, you know, whatever. They were accepting, they were open to anything. They let me go tour with a band. They let me become a fly fisherman. They, they, there was never really any hard set expectation other than what made me feel, you know, um, what made me feel worthy. Right. Uh, so I had great guidance there. Um, I, I just think that, I mean, my life is, it's, it's pretty darn good. You know, I, my wife is unbelievable. Very, I mean, the most supportive woman, I mean, ever. She seems amazing. Uh, so, I follow so, her on social. Oh my she gosh. seems awesome. Oh, she's unreal. So when I first got the t- back to TV, and I don't want to harp on TV, but when I got the first gig, we had just had Max. And no, no. Oh, no. This was the, uh, this was the second show. That's right. So um, we had had Max. He was maybe a couple months old. And I got a call to do another TV show. And um, I went up to her. I go, you know, I just got a call from a network. They want me to host this other TV show, Fly Fishing. She's like, really? And what does that entail? Well, they're, I'm going to be traveling all over the world. She's like, oh, really? And we just had Max. I mean, she's doing yoga in the other room. I should call her and ask her what this was. But anyway, um, and I'm like, honey, look, I don't have to do it. And then she sat there and she looked at me for a minute. And I was ready for her to say, yeah, I don't want you to do it. She sat there and looked and looked. And she said, you know what? If you don't do it, I'm going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I believe her too, actually. And I'm like, you're cool. She's like, are you kidding? That's an opportunity of a life. I'm like, what about Max? She's like, Max, we'll be fine. And there you go. So uh, not soon after that, I hopped on a a plane and I flew to Thailand. I was in the middle of the jungle saying, hi, honey, from a sat phone going, I'm in the middle of the jungle uh, fly fishing for uh, time this year. And I almost got bit by a, uh, by a, a spitting cobra or something like that. It was crazy, you know? So yeah, how's that? So, so she's the backbone of what I do. She's yeah. the backbone of this family. I mean, she's got, she's got three boys in this house. We're all, by the way, we're all Tauruses. My birthday's on May 8th. Max's birthday, my oldest is on May 8th. And Jackson, our little guy, is May 9th. What? So we're like a bunch, yeah, we're like a bunch of bulls and china closets around here knocking stuff over. And she's a saint. She puts up with us. I'm the <laughs> luckiest guy in the world. <laughs> <laughs> you've got it. You've, you seem to have it figured out. And that is actually one of the reasons I was really excited to sit down with you because you are so positive and optimistic. And, and I feel like it's very consistent. I feel like over the years that I've been watching you and just kind of you know, keeping an eye on what you've been up to. You, you seem to always be the same guy. I mean, am I reading that yeah. right? No, no, I, I'm, I'm the same guy. I, so it's it, where I live, you know, so, you know, in whatever, whatever, you know, space you're in, whether it's fly fishing or surfing, if you're kind of surrounded by that all the time, a lot of times you sort of lose sense of what your grounding point is. You know, all of a sudden you, you know, you become the expert at this or you, you know, what, you know what I mean? It's just really weird mm-hmm. where I live. Nobody gives a rat's ass who I, I, you know, I don't, I'm just sort of, I'm here. And I have always been here. It's like, I don't live in fly fishing central. I fly fish for a really, a, a fish that's kind of peculiar to many people. So I don't have time. I just don't have time to get wrapped up in it, you know, you know, in the it, right. The, the industry. Um, I just don't. And I think that's what keeps you grounded. And I have a wife that wouldn't let me, she'd kick my ass if, I mean, 
Yeah, she would never <laughs> let me do that. But I always say, you know, it's like being the world's tallest midget. It's like, you know, it's we just we fish for a living and we should be grateful that we make a living at it because there are a lot of people out there that are uh that don't like what they do and they they save their pennies to go fishing. We get to do it every day. We get to go go fishing every day. So I'm not the guy saving my pennies to go to Christmas Island or Andros or someplace. And that's the only two weeks I have in my life to fish. And it has to be good. You know, I, I can, I, I live fishing. I live the outdoors. So hey, I've got it made. You do, you I mean, do have it, it made. <laughs> now, if people you know? want to book with you, are you still taking bookings? And where can they sure, go do yeah. that? Just conwaybowman.com, just a website. And that's it. Or go to my Instagram, Conway Bowman. Um, and yeah, Instagram's real. I like that because it's easier for me to kind of, you know, I can kind of navigate that. Kind of. I mean, you and I, we've been trying to get this meeting together for a couple of years. I'm and, horrible but, on Instagram messages. I'm, I don't know why yeah, I cannot no, wrap my head no, around it. No, I am. I am too, really. But a lot of times people will, uh, you know, they'll, in their comments, they'll say, hey, you know, you know, you want to, can I fish? And I'll say, yeah, just email me. But honestly... The website is great. Email me through the website and um, I'll get back to you. So, yeah. Perfect. And I'll link all of this up. Is there anything that you would like to add or ask me before I let you get on with your evening? Thank you so much for having me. This is an honor. I have admired you for so many years and we've known each other for many, many years. And I mean, this is so great. And I just wish that uh, that we could, you know, connect in person uh, at some point. So uh, we got to make that happen. And uh, you and Charles and you guys have to come out. I guarantee you we are coming out. In fact, next time we do Disneyland, I mean, I was just there in January. I didn't even think about it. When I'm there next time in the summer, summer, don't come out in January. You're on my boat. I've already got the spot for you guys. Oh, thank you. Well, that goes both ways if you're down here in Australia or in Northern British Columbia. Love it. Love it. I'll take you up on it. I I love sealant fishing. (laughs) Do, do. And same with Michelle and the kids. All right. Okay, thanks, Conway. I'll talk to you soon. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 